Well, good morning, everyone. So my name is Rick. I'm so glad to be with you today. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be there today. I'm excited to get to share that chapter with you. I want to add, you know, my, my, my words and encouragement to Growth Track this Friday night at 6 p.m. And if, if you're new here, if you want to be coming two or three weeks or, or maybe a month, and you're wondering what is my next step, Growth Track is the next step. And it's where you'll meet the leadership, you'll meet our elders and, and ministers and some of our shepherds, and, 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 and you can ask any question that you want. You can see what we do, why we do it, our biblical foundation for everything that we do. And, 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 and really, if you're just gathering information and, and you want to lead just gathering information, that's great. If you say, man, I think I'm ready to place membership, that's great too. So you get to decide how far you take the next step it's just that that is a great way to have a good meal, have some babysitting, listen, ask some questions, and gather more information about First City Church. We would love for you to be there and join us. So we've got everything prepared for you. And bring a friend if you'd like. All right, so uh, this growth track Friday night. And uh, I also want to say thank you for those of you who, do not, who did not text me at 1 a.m. <laughs> last week. Well, you are my best friends. God bless you. While Suzanne and I were in India, and it was so much fun. We, we it, it was a family wedding. My sister Terry, she's oh, she's uh, oh, okay. I hear those. Thank you. That's so. When I started filming, I forgot to turn my phone sideways in HD, so that's why there's the split screen. And you'll see, we were at this palace. It took them 45 years to build this palace. And it started off with a bunch of us uh, white Christian non-dancing Americans and trying to learn how to, you know, Bollywood. And, uh, and so it was my nephew Charles who was getting married. That's his wife, Swati, over on the side. And that's when she, her, her entrance. And so you can see the walls. You can see a little bit about the palace. This was the first opening courtyard. And so there they are over on the side. I, I think here in just a second I'll... I'll end up turning the camera sideways. Here you go. So this was some of the groomsmen and all celebrating the beginning of marriage. And, and this was at a, a ceremony where, let's see, it was called the Pathy, where they would rub this stuff on your face. It was for blessing. They did the henna. I did the henna. My wife really did the henna. And, and it's a, a decoration for your arm. They had so many different traditions. Three days was this way. Three days. And it ended at 5 a.m. on the third day. And we had so much fun. This was the place where they were just dancing, and you can see Charles and Swati sitting back over there up top, and, uh, and they had the Indian, you know, music going. It was, I'm telling you, we are rookies when it comes to weddings. They really know how to throw a party. They're, they had a big dance on one of the nights, and they did everything in black light, so everything glowed and was shining, so none of my pictures took for that, and that plus you wouldn't have wanted to see me dance anyway. And here's where they're doing the pathy where Charles's dad, my brother-in-law, is about to rub the, the stuff on his face as a blessing for him and for his, you know, and, and his wife. Uh, it, and, and it was so much fun, and it was very different. Uh, an Indian wedding, a Hindu wedding, of course, is very different than a Christian wedding. And it's going to end where you'll see here, in this, a different location. Well, it's all in the same palace yard, but... Uh, this is where uh, the Hindu priest, uh, the Pujari, 
went over the seven Hindu, the seven vows of wedding. And, and Charles said, Rick, every time he would bow his head and speak in his language and do his prayers, Charles said, I'm just going to bow my head and pray to God. And so he did, and Swati did. And it was a real unique experience. We ended, by the way, the whole experience going to the Taj Mahal, and you'll see a very tired wife of mine who's waving at the camera once you see uh, the Taj that ought to be coming up here in just a second, and that'll be the end of the video. I left out all of the, there you go, that's, uh, there, look, uh, uh, you're like, just get that out of my face. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I, our days and nights are still mixed up. I was up last night till 4 a.m. I just could not go to sleep, but I'm wide awake right now. It's like I've had coffee, and so it, it was so much fun. Here's the deal. On the way over there, in fact, Suzanne and I drove to see our kids up in Charlotte. We flew out of Charlotte to Germany and then uh, over into New Delhi. But, but in, in the middle of all that travel, we get a phone call from this lady who helped my wife uh, with some of her clothing. We changed outfits probably four or five times. I purposely left out all of those pictures of me in the Hindu garb and the turban. <laughs> it's no, oh yeah, well, it's uh, no. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so we get this phone call and this lady said, I hate to make this phone call, but I have to make it. I need to tell you, and I want to say this, I want to do it respectfully, but, but do me a favor. Don't tell anybody that you know me. Don't give out my name. Don't give out my phone number. Don't tell them that I'm a Christian. Don't tell them that I helped Christians. Don't mention the name Jesus. Don't talk about God. They have a way of catching up with you and ruining people's lives, and they could ruin our visas, and they could ruin our jobs, and they will find out. They will hunt us down. When you get over there, it will be horrible if anything bad happened to you. I want to ask you not to talk about Jesus. And I know you're a pastor. I know you're doing this ceremony, but don't do it because right now you are going to Rajasthan. You're going to the stronghold of Hinduism in all of India. And they are seeing how far they can persecute Christians without the government stepping in and stopping them. And I would hate it if anything bad happened to you. So we said, thank you for, it was probably a difficult phone call. Thank you for calling us and telling us. We will honor your request and not mention your name or anything about you, you know, when we go. And our, what we really want to do is just honor the people because we made a request that's a weird request. Charles and even Swati wanted to get married in the name of God as a Christian and yet still experience the Hindu wedding. And so they had to make a special provision to see if they would allow that to happen or not. So we made the request. The family decided to do the wedding not in their city but five hours away in a different city. And... Uh, and for different reasons, some, some of it safety and some of it numbers and other things like that. And, but we didn't say anything about whether we would speak in the name of God or Jesus. And so I told Charles and them when we got there, I just asked the wedding coordinator and asked the people, is it okay if I talk about God? And so they put our, they called it, they said, we'll let you do a Western wedding. They wouldn't give us permission to do a Christian wedding. But we'll let you do a Western wedding and we'll put it at the beginning of the three days and we'll do your part, get that over with, then we'll do our Indian Hindu wedding. And we said, okay. 
we got there and met them and got started and one thing led to another and they I was wondering when am I going to do my part when are we going to do the western wedding and they didn't do it the first day and they came back and they wrote down a schedule and they put us at 5 p.m. of the last day of the wedding now mind you the wedding got over at 5 a.m. they are serious about weddings they said you don't understand having a wedding for a bride in India is more important than buying a house we save for the wedding before the, the child is born and so we don't rush it at all so they moved you know my piece of it till 5 p.m. of the last day and so I thought okay and and so when it came time this wedding coordinator and these other two ladies came up and, uh, and including the bride, Swati, and the lady said this, I want to say something to you. Um, you. Your family has been so much fun. You have jumped in and participated with us. You did the henna. You did all of our traditions. You've blessed our family, and we love the way you have honored us. So, whatever you want to say in the name of your God is okay with us, and we will honor all of that. I thought, okay. So, and I don't want to overstate it as if anything bad would happen to us. I just don't, they were too nice, I just believe, for any of that. But I also... I, I, listen, I'm never ashamed to speak of the name of Jesus, right? And so I already had God all the way through my deal. And, uh, but I also didn't want to make it hard on her parents or anybody else who was there. And, but when they gave us permission, we just did it. And we honored God through the whole thing, talked about Song of Solomon. We prayed in the name of Jesus, and we sealed their vows with communion. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, uh, and I had them interpret the whole thing because I thought this might be the only time when they get to hear something different about a God who is so personal and loves you so much and is so much for you. It might be brand new to them. And the interpreter, when he was interpreting, it was such a wonderful moment. And you could just really, I felt like God was honoring the whole thing. And he got so choked up, he couldn't finish interpreting so we got to this point, and he was just crying. And so we did the last part of the wedding, and, and including the communion, without any interpretation. But when you saw Swati crying and they saw Charles crying, they knew something special. And at the end, when it was over, they said, some of several of them, we've never seen or heard anything like that. Thank you so much. You know, and God bless you. And God bless you too. You know, when you go over someplace... It's so easy to take for granted that we can just speak about Jesus anytime we want. But when you go someplace and, you, and Jesus is not there, into a town, into a city, into a culture, and, 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 and you're not supposed to speak in the name of Jesus or you'll be persecuted, you miss it. And you want to say something. There's a piece of you that's just missing. And you begin to hunger for that piece. You begin to desire more of it. I think in America, we're so used to just living with Jesus. He's such a blessing to all of us that we forget what it's like without him. Remember, everywhere Paul went, he went and planted all of these cities. Everywhere he went was a city without Jesus. 
And he couldn't stop speaking about the, the man who he had seen and met, transformed his life. And so in the book of Ephesians, Taryn and I selected this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, as our theme verse for Ephesians. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Live a life filled with love. And I thought, man, that, that rolls off my tongue so easily. And I'm going to say, yeah, let's live a life filled with love. But I thought, man, before I preach on that, I better do some self-inventory. I better find out, do I even live that? And even though I might feel like I live it, what do other people think? And so I was in a Bible study with Devon, and, and you remember this, right? We were doing this Bible study, and we, we came across this verse, and we read it, and I said, man, I, I wonder if I were to just call up some people and, who know me really well, and I were to ask them, hey, uh, you see the way I live. You see how I feel in my life. You see what I do with my time. If you were to narrow it all down, what would you say? Complete the sentence. Rick, you fill up your life with, your life is full of... So the first person I called was my son, and, uh, and he was really kind with what he had to say. And I just put him on speaker so uh, I would be held accountable. Devon, well, you were listening to all of it. I'm like, okay, son, please say at least one nice thing, right? And he was so generous. He was so nice. And then I went home and asked my wife. <laughs> now, how many of you think that your wife may say something different than your son or your best friend? But she was so generous but it gave me a self-evaluation. Man, how do I, what do I fill up my life with? So the first thing before I even get any further is I want to encourage you. The person who knows you the best, ask them, when you evaluate my life and you see how I fill up my time, and you see what am I, you know, what am I, I want to say what am I full of, but I want to be really careful. My life is, is full of what? Is it anger? Is it rage? Is it football? Is it what is it? What is my life full of? What can you count on for me no matter what? And it doesn't matter how you approach me. You can approach me with a hug or you can approach me with a fist. What are you going to expect back? Man, I want my life to be full of love. And that's what Paul is saying. And Paul's going into all these places where the love of Jesus is nowhere around. And that was his struggle. So Taryn did such a great job last week talking about all the blessings that we have in Christ. And, 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 and it's just that whole chapter. And you're seated. And, and one of the things that Paul was trying to get them to see is, listen, God wants your heart. If he can get your heart, he can change your behavior. And so in Revelation chapter 2, John wrote the book of Revelation, and he's quoting Jesus. He had this vision and saw Jesus, and this is what Jesus said and gave to John and said, this is what I want you to write down concerning the church in Ephesus. Now, this is after Paul had been there and left. This is after, it's right, so this is later than that, and this is what Jesus is saying. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. All this is wonderful. He's a man, your behavior is great and you're even doing all the, wrong, all the right things. But look at the next sentence. But I have this complaint against you. 
You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. And this was the same thing that Paul was trying to get them to see in chapter 5 or 2. Man, love first. If God wants to change your heart. You know, what? going through this process of being transformed from the evil guy that I was to the godly man that I want to be. Changing your behavior sometimes is the easiest part. Changing your heart is the hardest part. I mean, when do you, learn, when do you lose your desire to sin? When do you, I didn't say it, but when do you lose the desire to want to? I didn't do it, but when do you lose your desire to want to? And, it's, and so, so what, what Paul is saying is, man, God wants to first penetrate your heart and change you from the inside out. Because if he can get your heart, then you're going to work overtime in changing your behavior, and it will just follow. But if you try to change your behavior and you haven't changed your heart, man, what a tough battle ahead you've got. And so for those of us who are sitting, you know, this the, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, God really changed my heart. I can clean up my behavior, especially when I know you're watching. But what about when no one's watching? Okay, well, maybe I can clean up my behavior even if no one's watching. But what about what goes on in my mind and what goes on in my heart? And what Paul is about to see and and, and say to us is all God wants is your heart. All he wants is your heart. He, he wants you to give your, yourself to him from the inside out. So I wrote down four things Ephesians chapter 2 is trying to teach us as we end this message today. Number one, outside of Christ, we are dead. Outside of Jesus Christ, you have nothing. And if you don't believe it, go to India for a while. Go, go someplace where Jesus is not. And, and see the void. You will feel it. You will, someone was, you know, this lady was talking to us on the phone. She said, when you're standing there and you're in the middle of everything that's going to be surrounding you, you will feel the spiritual warfare. She's right. Now, super, super, super hospitable, sweet people. But this is not about whether or not people are sweet. This is about if the name of Jesus is being upheld, are people saved? And God, man, these, God wants these people saved, amen? He wants you saved. And so he's like, if you're trying to live a life without Christ, you just need to know you're dead because our problem is the same as the problem of the people in Ephesus. That when, when someone comes and tries to correct us from the inside out, we tend to do two things, blame other people and minimize our weaknesses. We tend to, well, it's somebody else's fault. Every argument is because you think somebody else is wrong. And we begin by thinking that I'm right. I'm right. You don't understand. You don't know where I'm coming from. You don't get, right? And so we tend to want to blame everybody else. And the second thing we do is we try to minimize, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that. Or I'm not like that. Or, or, hey, it could be worse. Well, what if you were married to that? What if that was how I, you know, it's just, we just minimize. And so Paul just ends all of that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he said, listen, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
I mean, he just hits it head on. I'm not talking about everybody else. I mean, I, for, we, we sit and we think, man, my marriage would be better if my spouse would straighten up. My job would be better if my boss was different. You know, my friendships would be different if everybody else lived like I do. And you know, it's, all, it's like it's everybody else. He's like, I'm not talking to everybody else. I'm talking to you. And this is what I want, I want to say to you. I want to transform you, not the person you're sitting next to. And so next time you get into an argument, it's not about whether you can fix anybody else. That's what going to a counselor is all about. We go to a counselor, and as soon as we go in, we sit down, and they say, how you doing? I'm fine. Okay, well, tell me about fine. What's going on? Well, I need you to fix this spouse of mine. They're horrible. They're no good. It's, all, it's terrible. It's, oh, really? Wow. Well, what's going on? Well, I'm just sitting there minding my own business, and next thing you know, she comes around the corner, and she's just yelling at me. You, you were sitting there minding your own business, sitting where? Well, in front of the television. Okay. And, and what was going on? Well, how long have you been there? I don't know. I'd watched a couple of movies, and, uh, and I was playing some video game. A video game? Yeah. I was up to level 19. And she wanted me to turn it off. And it took me three hours to get there. So two two-hour movies. As you were there, seven hours. Well, what was your wife doing the whole time? Well, she was cleaning the house and folding the laundry and bathing the dog and getting the kids ready for bed and repairing the engine of the, and, and, she, and she was painting the house and, the, and she's... <laughs> I think I'm beginning to see the picture. I don't know why your wife would have been upset at you. Sitting there watching TV for hours while she's doing all the work. And then you go to bed and expect she's going to be your love angel. Right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm not talking about your best friend. I'm not talking about your boss. I'm talking about you. Today, I just want to talk to you. He's like, and these two words, trespasses and sins, they're two different words. The word sins is an archery term. And so it's like, and we talk about it like to miss the mark. It's like, it's like archery and I've got a bullseye and I'm aiming for the bullseye and I, and I miss and I just slightly miss. He's like, oh, man, you just missed the target. But when you read his sentence, he's like, no, you didn't just miss the target. You were dead in your sin. You're not even aiming for the target anymore. You're just shooting anybody who you think is coming against you. You're just aiming your target. You're just aiming your worst, your, your hardest weapons at anybody you think is going to put you down or insult you or try to correct you. You've, you have completely missed it. And he's like, some of you, if Jesus is the target, man, I want to be like that, and I want to aim everything that I am to, to, be, to hit Jesus, to be like him. He's like, for some of you, you started off so good. Man, I, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did it. But the longer time has gone, you just, your behavior is awful. And it's a reflection of your heart. The second term, trespasses, is a directional Greek word. It's, it's about a path. Trespasses. You're trespassing on, my, on, on space that you're not supposed to be on. There was a path that we were supposed to walk. 
and you were walking down that path, and then you got off the path and said, hey, that's my property. You're, you're trespassing. And, it, and what he's saying is, for some of you, you started down a path, well, I want to do what is right. I want to live like God. I want to be on the path of heaven. And then I veer off a little bit, and he's like, well, okay, I want to get back on the path. He says, but no, 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 no. You're dead in your trespass. In other words, you're wandering aimlessly. You don't even care about the right path anymore. You're going down the wrong path, and if somebody tries to correct you, you're going to put them in their place. How did you get on the wrong path? How did you get that far off? What happened? You've lost your first love. And I'm trying, God's like, I'm trying desperately to bring you back. And it's almost like he's saying, you've got to be very careful what path you choose because some of you can go down that path so far it's going to be impossible to turn around. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In verse 12, he said it this way, you lived in this world without God and without hope. And I know, man, when we start missing the target, we take our eyes off Jesus. We're no longer searching the scriptures to see how we should live we're no longer on our knees in prayer asking God humbly to forgive us and change us and transform us under the power of Jesus Christ, that we're just wounding anybody that comes against us and we don't care what path we're on. He's like, man, I'm just trying to tell you, stop, don't change because you're living in a world without God and without hope. And I know it's empty and you can feel it. You know you're like, and and. When you're alone, all to yourself, and it's just you and your thoughts, you know whether, whether you're saved or not, whether you belong to God or not, whether he has your heart or not. And so he's pleading with us. The first thing you need to know is, man, it's not going to end well for you if you're not submitting wholeheartedly to Jesus. And then he wants to encourage us. Verses 4 through 10 is so poetic. It's so beautiful. I wish that I could do justice to this whole passage. But God, in Christ, we become his masterpiece. And there's the two greatest words in this whole passage is, but God. And it's like, God's like, I'm watching you. And you're no longer aiming in the right direction. You're just wounding everybody around you. And you're walking aimlessly through life, filling up your time with junk. And I know you're empty, and, and, and it's hurting everybody, including you, and it's not going to end well. Pause. But God, but God, but, but God loves you. But God, go ahead and go to the next ver scripture there. So rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. That's so great. When you felt like your life was dead, when you wanted to quit, when you wanted to give up, when you thought, I can't do it anymore, God came and he picked you up. He 
took you out of the miry clay and set you on solid ground. He's like, I've come to get you. I've come to rescue you. I've come to lift you up. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. I am here for you. And he seated us in heavenly places right next to Christ. So here's God on the throne, his son Jesus, and we're right next to him. And what he's trying to say is God can't even see you without looking through Jesus. So he doesn't even see your bad behavior. When you're in Christ, all he sees is Jesus, and he's so proud of Jesus. You get credit for being with him, in him. And he's like, God is, but God is running after you. His, he's aiming right at you. His path is right toward you to save you, to raise you up to seat you next to him and his son, Jesus. And if that weren't enough, he continues. So God can point us in the future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has for us, for we're united with Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift for God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. You know, you don't earn salvation. You don't work hard, work hard, work hard, do right, do right, do right. And God said, well, okay, I guess you can get in. I guess I'll say. It doesn't work that way. You give your heart to God, and he gives you the gift of salvation. And because of that great gift, once it penetrates your heart, all you want to do is be pleasing, you know, to him. For we are God's, I love his masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That's such a rich scripture. I wish I could do it justice. But you're his masterpiece. Now, this is an artistic phrase. If, if he was looking at a sculptor, he's like, God is going to sculpt you into a brand new person. I see the way you are. I see the way you've been. I see your life. I see your sin. And if it's okay with you, I have a new image for you. And I'm going to create something brand new in you. It's, it's uh, the writing of a song. He's, uh, you're going to be my, my best song that I've ever written. Or, or if you're writing a poem to a poet, it's like you, you are the new poem of God. He's going to write a poem of beauty about you. So he's like, I, I, you're God's masterpiece. He's spending all his time working on you, and he prepared it long ago so that you could walk in what he has prepared and planned for you. The best I've ever heard of that was Sarah Holt's dad, Lee. And he was, I went over to his house, and he's an older gentleman, and he has a hard time coming to, uh, to worship with us anymore just because uh, there's so much movement going on that he has to really narrow down and focus or he gets uh, imbalanced. And so Lee's probably not here today, but I bet they'll either be watching at home or he'll be listening to this message later. And Lee was sharing with me, I, I'll go over to his house, he's such a wise man. And I'll sit down and I'll say, okay, Lee, I'm just going to read the Bible. And anytime I come across something that you want to talk about, you just start talking and I'll get quiet. And so reading this passage, he said, you know how God did that? And I said, no, sir. He said, God doesn't sit on time, right? I've shared this with some of you before. God doesn't sit on time. He sits outside of time. He created time. 
And so he sees your birth and your death in the same moment. He sees your whole life. It's right in front of him. And he planned out your whole life. And he looked at all the major events in your life, everything that you would struggle with, everything that you would celebrate, all of your, your biggest decisions, your toughest struggles. And he, 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 it's all in front of him. And it's all in the filing cabinet. And it's like God just pulls out the filing cabinet and he, and he gets out your file and he opens it up to that one event, that one struggle. And he and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they pour over one question. What is the most loving thing we can do for them right now? They decide on that. They determine it. They put it in the file and close it up and they wait. And when that moment comes, they've already determined what they're going to do and how they're going to do the most loving thing for you. In every phase of your life, You've been through a lot of struggles. I know you've been through a lot of pain. And God's been with you. And he's saying, I want to rescue you. And at the end of this message, he's saying, I want to turn you into a new person. And it's like there were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were sorcerers, there were idol worshipers. And he's like, all of us are now going to be transformed. We're now all going to become Christians. We're going to become a follower of the way. And Jesus is going to transform all of us into something different. All of us used to go to different churches, right? And we've all come together here to form one new body. And the last thing that he says in this passage is he's made us to be one holy temple. Meaning, he's going to use us to take God into our hurting community. Man, God wants to transform your life. And so we need to stop pushing away we need to stop aiming all of our anger at the people who are trying to transform us. And this message is only saying this, are you, t are you ready to submit? Are you ready to let God transform your life? If you are, then he's ready for you. He's been waiting for you for a long time.